and felicitations. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Thanks for joining me once again for another episode of my podcast. Well, I have to be honest with you straight up. I had to trash my last episode. It was six segments, all about 10, 12 minutes long. And it just took me too long. I took over two weeks just to get to six segments. It was varied, it was about a lot of topics, and I just didn't like the way it was churning out. It sounded fine, don't get me wrong, it sounded fine, it's just, for me it was too long, it became dated, and you know, in the world of comedy where I come from, you don't want to do dated material, because it's old, it's no, it's stale, so I'm going to try to catch back up, and get this episode out by Friday once again, and get back on track. I was talking with a friend of mine. And uh, he said he thought the worst of had happened to me because he hadn't heard from me or heard a podcast. And I said, no, I'm fine. It's just, you know, trying to turn these things out ain't easy. When it, when I, before, when I used to do it with another guy, we had all the equipment. We had a place to do it in quiet and some relative quiet. And then he did the editing, which didn't take him long because, you know, I try not to do too many screw-ups. And uh, it worked out. You know, we churned out about 15 episodes. Then I lost my job at the comedy club, and my health sort of issue, issue sort of took over. So one thing leads to another. You know how it goes. So we're gonna get back on track with this episode. Uh, I guess this is episode 3A because the third one was kind of crap, and uh, I had to start over. So here we go. We're starting over. Uh, stick around. We'll be back with some more. Uh, we'll get. We'll dive into the to the meat of this. Uh, we're going to talk more about my health and my health issues, which is what the the podcast originally was about. And uh, it's Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. I'm here. I got uh, L- uh, Life, Liberty, and Levine on on Fox. Yes, you know I'm a con- I'm a conservative, so I tend to watch these programs on Sunday and see what's going on. It keeps my mind a little bit sharper than than yours, and I'm not saying I'm better than you, I'm just saying I try to keep up, so stick around, we'll be right back, and uh, Viva Fiesta! Thank you, and you are listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I am not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur, and that little bit of bumper music at the opening is Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, the American edit. It's 12 minutes long or something like that. The reason I started out with this music is because I was originally going to go with Beethoven's Fifth, which is a very widely known piece of uh, modern uh orchestral art I was even going to use Mozart's uh, 40th Symphony but I went with this because it's a little bit more poignant to the point of my uh, topic some time ago if you ever read the Cherland Chronicles which you probably didn't uh, I did I wrote uh, a blog about uh, the way the staff at a dialysis clinic works 
it works like an orchestra. There's a woodwind section, there's a percussion section, there's a string section, and they all work together under the conduction of the conductor, and in this case at a clinic, the floor nurse, who oversees all the technicians and the other nurses to make sure everybody gets in on time, gets hooked up to their machine, and uh, has their treatment done, and then get off with some uh, degree of mm, dignity, I guess. After all, we go in there, and, and, and I'm pretty sure many of my chairmates don't realize this is a surgical procedure that you're about to undergo, which is why we prep for surgery. We go in uh, after we weigh in and uh, we get our chair assignment. We go to us. We're supposed to. This is what we're supposed to do. I still do it. It's habit. You know, I'm ex-military. You get me into a habit, it's going to stay that way. So you go, you're supposed to go to the sink. And I've noticed, and I brought this up to some of the techs. I noticed that some of my other chairmates don't wash their arms before they go to get uh, stuck. I still do. Run my hand, my arm under the water, get some soap, soap it up, rinse it off, dry it off, and I'm sterile for the most part. Then they go and continue the sterilization procedure by wiping my arm down with alcohol and wiping this needle down with alcohol. Now, although sometimes I don't see all the technicians uh, wiping the, the needle down with alcohol. Hell, even when I use my needles at home on my for my, uh, my uh, diabetes, I, I clean the needle. Before I put the the the, dia, uh, the the insulin in the in the uh, syringe, and then before I stick myself with the needle, I clean the needle. It's a surgical procedure. This this is what's in my head. Now I notice, and I like I said, I brought this up that a lot of my other chairmates don't wash their arms. What's the deal? They don't stress it like they used to. And I said, you know what? There's a lot of things they don't stress here anymore because there's a lot of what I would call laxadaisicalness if that's a word uh, so getting back to a well-oiled orchestra everybody worked in unison everybody worked uh, if somebody needed a hand it was given without question all, all you have to do is make a, a request for I need help or I need a check or this this and the other and it gets done everybody helped everybody else now and this is all a function of no leadership uh, the nurse is supposed to provide leadership for the troops. They're the general or the uh, the captain of the battalion at that time. And when there's no leadership, the troops suffer. Uh, there's a lot of things, like I said, the, they don't re- require people to wash their arms. They're not they're not making them. It's it's not uh, part of the procedure anymore. I see technicians arguing with each other in the open in front of us, and. While it's entertainment for me, it's detrimental to the morale of the rest of the troops because there are people, and I mean there are other techs, that are disliked by some, it's it's a us versus them kind of thing. Um, and it's usually one or two, uh, simply because, I tell you this now, because in the past year, when COVID really hit and everybody was just all freaked out about about it, um, the uh, the techs just started getting a lot more lax. Uh, some started getting bossy. See, that's that's the other thing that happens when there's no leadership higher up. People further down the line will find, take it upon themselves to fill that leadership role. And a lot of time, nine times out of ten, you're not a leader. You're just a bully who wants to lead the band and uh, tell people what to do. And usually that involves them doing your work for you. And so we have a problem. Now, let's kick the chain of command up a bit. There's a doctor. He's the actually owner-operator of uh, U.S. Renal Group. And his offices are there upstairs from where we're at. We're on the we're on the the street level floor. Uh, there are doctors. Uh, there's a vascular uh, office upstairs above us. Then there are the doctors, the the renal doctors that service our clinic are up there. And then the doctor, Doctor Masari, is at the very top of that pyramid. You know, Doctor Masari's there when you see his Tesla parked in the parking lot. Yes, he drives a Tesla. 
an $80,000 car. Actually, much more like $100,000 because there's not that many of them on the road. So anyway, he should be considered the commanding general of U.S. Reno. His leadership should flow down, but there is no leadership, so nothing flows down. And you have a lot of people trying to fill the gap who aren't leaders, who try to be. And uh, so the rest of the troops, and that means the technicians and the patients, suffer. See, when there's no one to guide and tell you what to do, you won't do it. Hey, believe me, I was in the military. If they weren't on our asses all the time about this, this, and getting haircuts and shining your shoes, we wouldn't do it. That's just the way it is. And a clinic, Amazon, Walmart, uh, UPS, FedEx is no different. You got to stay on your people. And somebody said, well, you know, he's always on my ass. Well, there's a reason because they don't want the customer is the final end product of your business, any business. And when you have disputes in the ranks, who's going to suffer? The customer or the patient, in this case, the end, the end result of your work. So when you have a commanding general that doesn't give a shit, and I'm just going to call a spade a spade. You're going to have nurses down the line, administrators who don't give a shit either. So now that brings me to my clinic. We're fully staffed now. We have the technicians that we need. We lost a nurse. Uh, we Actually, the nurse was a facility administrator. Uh, she would, I would say you would say she was the battalion commander or maybe the base commander. She left for greener pastures. We're, we're usually a stepping stone for other, for nurses that want to move on up the line or, or get into a hospital. When, you know, you can make a buttload of money working in a dialysis clinic if you know what you're doing, if you've got it together. Now, about a year ago, we had a guy, facility administrator by the name of Alberto Perez. This guy was the shiznit when it came to nurses. The guy was a registered nurse. The guy had been working in dialysis clinics for 30 years. He knew his shit. I'm not going to lie to you about that. Alberto knew his job. As a matter of fact, he knew his job so well, he knew the job of the per person upstairs above him and the person downstairs below him. And it always worked. He loved his troops. He loved his patients. And he made sure they understood that. And when he knew, when they knew that he had their backs, there was no worries. The, the clinic ran like such a well-oiled machine. It was unbelievable. Uh, one of the other things that Alberto did is he made it his job to know every patient that that clinic had in, uh, on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Tuesday, Thursdays, Saturdays. Every shift... Alberto would come and go to each and every one of us. How you doing? What's going on? What do you need? You need anything? Before the doctors, the doctors would only come maybe once a week. Sometimes they would come three times a week, but Alberto was there every day, every shift. Now, this guy would do the job of three people at that clinic. He would come to you at the end of every month when the lab results came in, and he would sit down with each and every, each and every individual person and go over each one of your lab results, tell you what it meant. <clears throat> if it was too high or too low, he would tell you how to fix it, what to do, what not to eat, uh, what to drink, or what not to drink to bring your levels back down to within specs. On days where he had technicians out because it was early in the COVID uh, uh, situation, he would come in at four in the morning if somebody was out to make sure all the patients got in on time and got hooked up on time. This is how dedicated he was to his job. I've never seen anybody in my life, even in the Navy, that was this dedicated to what he did for a living. Now, he was very sweet man, very smart man, and I rarely gave him any shit because he had it together. What? 
if I screw with you, it's because you're doing something not correct. You're doing something improperly. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I came from the submarine force. You ride people like that. You, you don't give them a, mon a minute to breathe. You just stay on their asses. But with Albert, there was no need for that because he had his shit together. Now, the downside to all this is he would come into work. Now, this is, this is where the company sucks. <clears throat> Every morning, a technician has to come in early, usually about 2.30 in the morning, yes, in the a.m., because they have to turn on the water, uh, program the machines, get them ready for each patient, because each patient has different parameters. Uh, make sure that the mix, that the dialysis mix is properly set up for that patient. And then the patient comes in, the patient gets hooked up, and they're good to go. Now, the company, I don't understand this at all. And once again, this falls back to Dr. Masari, because he's the commanding general. You have to come in at 2.33 in the morning. But, oh, guess what? Here's the upside to that. They're not going to pay you until 3.45 a.m. That's the time you clock in, and that's the time they will start paying you. But yet, if you come in at 3.45, you've only got 15 minutes to get every get 25 machines loaded for bear, and for the patients who are already, already starting to arrive, so that way the first one gets on at, at, at 4 o'clock. Now, that's almost an impossibility. Because they, I've talked to the tech, I talked to different technicians, and it takes them about an hour to get everything rolling. But a lot of them will come in early and work for free, and this is wrong. This is very, very wrong for this company to do that. If I have to come into work early, guess what? You're going to be paying me for the minute I get there, the minute I clock in. You're paying my ass because I'm putting in the work. Now, if you want me to work for free, guess what? You're going to get free a free free worth of work, and that means you're going to get a really shitty job. So, they don't pay these people. I don't know if he because he says they're, they're making twenty bucks an hour. That's more than enough. But then again, if I got to drag my ass in at two thirty in the morning, well, guess what? And I don't clock into three forty-five. I'm not going to start work to three forty-five. It makes sense. I don't know why this guy thinks, oh, they're, they're going to come in and they're going to start working at 2.30 in the morning out of the kindness of their hearts. He's fucking nuts. Nuts. And the other thing I want to mention about Dr. Masari is I've been in this clinic for four years. Four years on the 18th of April, which will be sometime at the end of this week, if I get this episode out in time. And uh, I've never met the man. I've never seen him. I didn't even know what he looked like until a couple of weeks ago. And I'll get to that in a minute. You would think that a man who makes probably a million dollars a month, yes, a month, because he gets paid mostly from Medicare, at least that's who pays my bills, and every other, and there's probably about 300 plus patients that go to that clinic a week. Two shifts, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And each each day has three tiers or three shifts. The morning shift that comes in around 5-ish, then the next shift that comes in around 10, and the next shift that comes in around 2 because they need to be done by 7 o'clock to get out at 8. Yes, they close at about 8 o'clock when the last patient leaves. Then they got to turn off valves, shut off machines, put things away. That's another hour that they probably don't pay them for, knowing the way this company works. And who's the company? U.S. Reno. Oh, wait, before you say, well, I'm going to get out of U.S. Reno, I'm going to go to, to DeVita, or I'm going to go to Fresenius. They all work the same way. Now, there might be various differences. I'm not going to say there aren't. But if they have a man like Masari sitting at the top of their pyramid, it's probably going to run just like that. So... Let's see, where were we? Oh, yeah, getting back to the, to the job. So now let's get back to Alberto. Now, Alberto would come in early in the mornings, and he would stay late at night because he believed in what he did. 
he was the kind of healthcare worker that you wish was in every hospital, every doctor's office, because they care. They give a shit about you as a patient because you are the end product of why they're there in the first place. So, one day, Albert went to Dr. Masari and said, Hey, you know, I'm putting in all this extra time, and I know my job doesn't require it, but I'd like to get paid for it. Without even missing a beat, Dr. Masari said, Not only no, but hell no. If you come in early, that's on your on you. That's on your own time. You wanted to be here. But Albert was like, but I'm doing a job. I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to I'm doing the job of a, of a technician that didn't come in. I'm on the floor. I'm sticking people. I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, and I'm signing that, and you should pay me for it. So Dr. Masari said no. So one day, after this conversation was had with uh, Albert and the doctor, uh, I was just getting ready to get off my machine, and Alberto comes out and he says, "Hey, would you see me in my office when you're done?" And I, sure. I'm like, "Shit, what's going on? Why? I don't you know, you know when you get called in somebody's office, it's not good juju." So I got off the the machine, I got ready to go, and I got wait out, and I went to Alberto's office, and he said, "Have a seat, Ruben." So I sat down. And I said, "Okay, what's going on? What's what's the deal?" And he looked at me straight in the eye and he says, uh, "I'm leaving." My last day is going to be August the 31st or something like that. And I was like, what? Why? And he told me why. And I was like, that's bullshit. You know, if you're here doing the job, you should get paid for it. He goes, yeah, I, I agree. But Dr. Masuri doesn't see it that way. So with that, he left. And then we got another facility administrator to take his place by the name of Karen, another registered nurse. She was nowhere near the caliber that Alberto was. She never made it a point to get to know the patients, much less talk to us. She knew who I was because I bitched a lot, and I would bitch at her. And I know I was not one of her favorites. But you know what? I don't give a shit. Hey, things got to run, and things got to run the way I think they should run. If you're not doing the job, then you need to step aside and find somebody else that's willing to let it be done. So, she quit. She's been gone two weeks already. See, once again, I say what I say. They come to this place because it's a job. It's something to fill in the time till they move on to where they want to be. Because they probably already had two or three feeders out. That's going to take times for them to get hired. So, I'll come work here for the interim, and then I'm just going to leave. I don't give a shit about these people. You see? There are very few people in the healthcare uh, profession that actually really give a damn about what they do and who they do it for. And you know when that changes? When they become a patient. And then they're the biggest ones that bitch, well, I was, I'm a RN and I know what I'm doing. Well, you know what? Guess what? You're not on the RN now. You're on the other end of that, that, that shit stick. So enjoy it. So anyway, let's get back to Dr. Masari. Like I said, I've never seen Dr. Masari. Don't know, didn't know what he looked like. I assumed he was an old doctor already, uh, been running clinics for years and years and years, and was just sitting back and making the money. And what kind of doctor is he? He's a nephrologist. He's a kidney doctor. And he still sees pati patients because some of my, my chairmates are his patients. And I asked him, I said, well, why don't, when you see him, why don't you tell him what goes on here? They do, and he says, go and see so-and-so and tell them. So this is where the vicious circle begins. They go to the social worker and they tell her what's going on and that's where it ends because she's not going to do anything because, I mean, you have to go to Dr. Masari. Dr. Masari is actually have to work to fix it and he's not going to fix it because he doesn't care either. So now let me tell you about Dr. Masari. The other day I'm watching, a, uh, I'm watching TV in the clinic and it's about 9 o'clock, and this commercial comes on for a bank. And the bank is called Omegami Bank. And the first person you see is this little brown-skinned man. And I can tell right away he's Indian or Pakistani of that persuasion. And then I see uh, uh, the credit flash up under his, under his face. And it says, Dr., I think it's Asan Masari. U.S. Reno Group. Oh my god, so now I'm watching. And it's basically a commercial for Omega Big Bank. And then they show two other people that are in two other professions. 
and the way it ends is like, and then he says, so Omega Me is my bank. And that's the end of it. He's a young man. If he's if he's 50, he's, he's, he's a day. But he's a young man. I thought he was this old doctor, but he's not. He's a very young man. He's probably the same age mostly as my nephrologist, Dr. Velez. So I say, okay, I've been in this clinic four years. I've been under his tutelage for four years. Well, tutelage is not the, is not the right word. His care. Let's just leave it at that. Um, and he's never shown his face in the clinic. Nobody, and people that I talk to have never seen him. Unless you happen to be his patient. But yet, he's got time to do commercials for a bank. But he doesn't have time to come down to the clinic introduce himself to each one of his patients and say, I'm Dr. Masari, I'm the man that you pay every month through Medicare or private insurance. That's my Tesla out in the parking lot. So, no, there's no contact. So I bring this point up to my uh, patient ad uh, advocate. And he's like, you know what, I've never met Dr. Masari either. You know, I would think if you're going to be the patient advocate, you're going to be the voice of, 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 the, of my chairmates and myself, you should know who the head honcho is. You should know who the sheriff in town is before you take the job. So I found out from my patient advocate that he was, the job was thrown in his lap. Now my patient advocate is a former high school principal that worked for SAISD. Nah, and uh, he means well and when we go to him with our problems well we found out that he goes to the social worker and then the social worker would go to the facility administrator but guess what we don't have a facility administrator so when the problem stops the, the, when, the, when the, the complaint goes to the social worker it stops that's where the buck stops nothing's going to get done I'll give you a perfect example uh, there is a patient uh, that comes to my clinic when he uses the restroom because most of us have to use the restroom before we go to treatment they're going to sit there for four hours he makes a mess and by a mess if you can let your weirdest imagination run wild in a restroom that's the mess I mean the guy shit on the floor one time when I was going in there and I got his excrement all over my shoes and, nothing, and I've complained to everybody to hell and high water with this guy and nothing gets done. So one day I sat down with the FA, with the facility administrator, I said, hey, why don't we do this? Put a thing of wipes on the toilet and give a paper, take a paper to each and every one of us like you do for everything to make us read and sign and acknowledge that, yes, I will not leave the restroom a mess for other patients. What do they do? They put a sign on both of the restrooms in the waiting room and in the clinic. Oh, and yes, by the way, we only have one restroom that 25 people have to share. The technicians and the nurses have their own restroom, but all the patients are going to use the same one. And there's only one restroom in the waiting room and one restroom in the clinic. So if people make a mess, guess what? 25 people are leaving 25 messes. So this guy gets to the clinic at the same time, 8.30 every or on his Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I have to go to the restroom before he gets there, which is 8 o'clock is usually when I try to take my restroom break. So that's all they did was put a sign on the door, and I laughed, and I laughed, and I said, that's not going to get a fucking thing done. And it didn't. The guy still continues to make a mess, and I continue to complain that they have not done a thing about him. This is the level of care that these people provide for us, yet they tell us we are the most important thing there, but then treat us as such. Treat us like we are the people you say we are. Don't treat us like dirt. Homeless people get treated better. I've seen it, but yet we can't get a... You know what? If it was up to me, I would have kicked this guy out of my clinic. If you can't, if you can't keep... If you think you're at home... If this is what you do at home, then I don't, I don't even want you coming to my clinic. Go somewhere else. Kick him out. Kick him the fuck out. They've done it before for less. 
there was a guy they kicked out of the clinic because he was he complained too much, and uh, there's so many things wrong with this clinic. There are so many things wrong with U.S. Renal because I hear these horror stories at other U.S. Renal clinics, like the one on Pleasanton Road, the one on uh, uh, in in, uh, in Leon Valley, the one in Shirts. And it all boils down to leadership. There's very little leadership in this joint. Because once again, if anything I learned in the military, leadership start, leadership starts from the top and works its way down in a uniform manner. But it seems that a lot of these people at U.S. Reno have gotten the bug of money in their nose and all they want to do is make more and more money and screw the rest of us. Let's collect the money that these people owe us and let's live high on the hog. There was a nurse at our clinic that owned a two road, because I asked him one day, just cause of hey, what, what kind of vehicles do you own? He had two roadsters, two $40,000 cars. He had two Hummers, a $60,000, two of them, $60,000 vehicle. He owned three Harley Davidsons and he was in the process of purchasing a fourth. And I'm like, are you married? He goes, nope, I'm single. I have no children. I got two houses. I said, all from working in a dialysis clinic? He said, yes. This place is a cash cow if you play your cards right. Another nurse has gone through four vehicles in the time that I knew him. So, cash cow? Hell yes. When they're billing, the, when they're billing Medicare $160,000 a month. Yes, you heard me correctly. One hundred sixty thousand dollars a month every 30 days and they whine and complain that oh but medicaid only pays us a half of that you know what i don't i'm never going to see eighty thousand dollars a month in my life i have to live off one thousand dollars a year a month that the government sends me through social security and that's only because i'm a sick boy and i can't work I gotta live on that, but you can make a shitload of money and drive all sorts of fancy cars, but you can't keep the decent people to provide for us who are the reason you're here. I find that very hard to believe. Well, uh, oh wow, I can't believe I just droned on for 30 minutes. But you're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with some more shtick. And uh, we'll see what happens. I don't know if I've already beaten this horse to death. But uh, we'll see on the next on the next episode, the next block. All right. Like I said, you're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. And you can tell that I'm not dead yet because I'm bitching up a storm today. So... Stick around. We'll be right back with more stuff. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate the fine people at Anchor Podcast for putting this guy out, and I apologize for taking so long to get back to you. We'll be right back. Stick around. back. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm your host, Ben Hur. And um, this segment we're going to talk about, we're going to stick with the medical part aspect of, uh, of the podcast. And we're going to talk about something that I don't touch on enough. And hence the opening music, Give It To Me Baby by Rick James. Um, it's about donations. And I'm not talking about monetary donations. I'm talking about the donation of life. The ultimate donor, a living donor for a kidney. The reason I'm doing this segment about this is because uh, the other day, a friend of mine that I used to work with at the comedy club posted in a very boastful way that she's a, an organ donor. So upon her death in a tragic accident... 
It's on the back of her driver's license that she's an organ donor. They will take her organs and she will give the gift of life. I posted on her on her uh, wall because of that post. I said, hey, we need living donors too. People that need kidneys could use, a, use it best from a living donor, not so much a cadaver. I haven't heard back from her or she hasn't ever responded to that post at all. Because she put up that she was an organ donor, but when I said push came and shove, she shut up. A living donor is the best kind of donor we can hope for, especially if you're a match. If your DNA and all that other stuff matches, then it's even better for us. Now, here's the thing about being a living donor. Most people don't know this, but if you're at the hospital... Let's say your hospital of choice or for transplant is University Hospital System. Fine. You as a donor do not pay a cent. Your surgery, your recovery is covered. It doesn't cost you a red penny. You don't, you don't pay a dime out of your pocket. It's all covered. Now... The other flip side of that is in the event you ever need a, a kidney because your other one fails, for whatever reason, you go to the top of the list because you were a living donor. Now, uh, the way it works is that you will go into the hospital, they'll remove your kidney, put it in, in the recipient, and you will have about a one-week hospital stay to make sure that you heal properly, there's no infection, and then they can release you. So, I'm not saying it's a vacation, it's not certainly not a picnic, but you are doing a big service to someone else by giving them the gift of life. So now if you want to tout that, yeah, you're an organ donor, but you're not, nobody's getting your organs until you die, well, that's not much of a statement when you could be a living donor. Now, I had a woman, a friend of mine, put me in contact with a girl that wanted to be a donor. Now, I don't know that she was a match. We never got that far. Because when I contacted her and said, hey, I'm looking for a living donor. Because that's one thing the hospital does hit you up with. Do you have any living donor candidates? So, I told her, yeah, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So, I wrote to her. I, I got in touch with her and I said, hey, you still interested in being a living donor? And then she came back to me, well, I just got into a relationship with this guy, and da-da-da-da-da, and da-da-da-da-da. You know what? Save me the bullshit. Just say no. I don't know why people start doing a song and dance when you just say no. No is no. I, I changed my mind. So I thought it was pretty shitty of this person to be, oh, yeah, I'm going to be gung-ho about this. I'm going to give you my kidney. I'm going to find somebody to give it to because she ends up in a relationship that all goes out the door don't build up false hopes for yourself to make yourself seem like a better person if you say you're going to do it do it that's, that's the important thing you're saving a life saving a life is the most important thing you have no earthly idea how many of us go day after day treatment after treatment waiting to see if they ever find it in the in the kidney registry a match for you to get you a, a, a cadaver kidney when they could just go and take a blood sample get your DNA and find out if you're a match or not with the way modern technology is it's 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 a little much 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 easier than it used to be and you know what, hey, if they have to open up your back just a little bit to take a biopsy of the kidney, well, that's, 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 I've had that done. It's, it's not pleasant, but it's not that bad. So, let me donors, don't make yourself feel better by patting yourself on the back that you're going to be an organ donor when you die. Because what if you die and you're 90 years old? Nobody wants your organs. You're too old. But now if you get mangled in a car accident, yeah, they go your eyes, your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, whatever they can harvest. But when you say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an organ donor, you know, you know, I go that to that shit. 
You're not. Get in line and, and say you want to donate a kidney. Put up or shut up. You know, come on. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's frustrating because everybody wants you to find yourself a kidney, but not everybody wants to give one up. You got two. You can live with one. You can get drunk even faster on one kidney. Yeah, that's what I'm told. I wouldn't know. I get drunk on two beers because my kidneys don't process the alcohol quickly enough, so it sits in my body for a while. So yeah, you know that that was a little upsetting to me that you would say, "Oh yeah, I'm an organ donor," and then oh, but when I put till you put up or shut up, hey, how about being a living donor? You kind of like don't say a thing. Hopefully, I'll forget about it. I haven't, and I'm not. If I ever see her again, I'm gonna bring it up to her. You know, hey, you know, you shouldn't say shit like that if you're not gonna put up or shut up. So, uh, the reason I say this is because. Uh, they're both dead now, but I had, there were two other guys that I knew, chairmates of mine, they were both named Ruben, and, uh, we were the three Rubens. They were both on dialysis for, one was 12 years, the other one was 18. That's a long time. (coughs) A long time. Nine times out of ten, we don't survive. We don't make it to the time we can find a donor kidney or one that's a match. And we die. When there are so many kidneys, so many people out there that could be a match and save a lot of lives. So if you feel it in your heart to find out if if you could be a living donor, if you're relatively healthy, not a heavy drinker or drug user, and your kidney is viable, they will find somebody that will match your kidney and they will get the, pro- the ball rolling to do a transplant and you can save a life. And the best part about it is you'll still be alive to meet the person you donated to if you both desire. When you die, you don't know where your organs go. That's, see, that's why it's such a big deal, oh, I'm an organ donor because you're dead, doesn't matter. But like I said, if you're 95, nobody wants your organs. You're too old. They're dust when they pull them out. So, be a living donor. Not a dead one. You have more fun that way. Okay, well, that's, that's it for this one. That, that's, I didn't want to, this, this one to take up too much time. So, stick around. We'll be right back with more Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. And stick around, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking around. Well, this is going to be the last uh, block for this episode. Uh, Today is Good Friday. And the reason I brought that up is uh, two years ago, well, Good Friday marks a different kind of... uh, Oh, memorial for me. Besides the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I lost a friend of mine, one of my chairmates, Victor. Uh, oh my God, what was his last name? Tovar. Victor Tovar. He's been did two years. The last time I saw him was the week of, well, it was Holy Week basically, back in. Uh, 2020 and the pandemic was just 
starting to get a hold of everybody. And earlier that week on Monday, see, Victor used to sit one chair away from me. We were, there were three of us. It was me, him, and Johnny. We were the three cramping amigos. We would always cramp, and we were always together. Uh, so, Victor was sick that week. On Monday, when I saw him, he had real bad cold. He had the flu, is what he, what he thought he had. So, on Wednesday, he was still sick. And as we're chatting, you know, he told me he was going to go to the hospital because he just couldn't, he had, he was just really sick. And so I was like, okay. So I said, I will, hopefully I'll see you Friday. Now, Friday was a very bad day, that, that particular Friday. This is why Good Friday is always stuck in my head now for the past two years. <clears throat> and... Uh, when you would show up at clinic, you know, they would give you a mask. So I was getting a free, a fresh mask every other day. So on this particular day, I go and I sit in the waiting room. There's about three or four people in there. You know, we're striking up, making small talk with one another. And uh, so I'm talking to Mean Hadis, one of my chairmates. And he's usually, he's a guy usually about five or six chairs away from me. But you know, I I know I know the guy. You know, we we chat. So we're talking about this, that, and the other thing. No big deal, right? And then the door opens up, and the nurse yells at me to put my mask on. I pull the mask down because I wanted to talk. Because you know, you have a hard time communicating with a mask on. It's hard to hear sometimes. So. I put the mask back up, shut her up. So now she's watching me every five minutes, every couple of minutes, she's turning around just to see what I'm doing. And me, you know, well, you know me, I've, I'm gonna pull the mask down. And if you don't like it, well, you can, you can suck it, you know? So I keep pulling the mask down and talk to this guy and I put it back up when I see her turning around. Then she opens the door. She's yelling at me again. You know, I see that you're you're not wearing your mask. You need to wear the mask. You need to wear it. So we're now all of a sudden she and I are having this argument, and we're yelling at each other back and forth in the in the waiting room. So me not to I'm not going to let let it anybody bully me or 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 talk down to me. I don't care who you are. I'm just not going to let that happen. So we're arguing, we're arguing, and there's this huge fat security guard. I'm not saying that I'm in any kind of great shape, but there was this big fat security guard who was trying to make time or trying to impress the, the nurse. I get, I get, my, that's my guess because he kept trying to like sweet talk her, and she would have nothing to do with this guy. So at some point, he jumps into the argument, so now I'm arguing with her and the security guard. And I look over at me and Hades, this this cat, and he's like, I want nothing. I don't want any of that. And I'm, I'm like, cool, you know, it's not your fight. It's mine. So now I'm arguing with the nurse and with the security guard. So then the security guard adjusts his belt for the fat around his waist and waddles into the waiting room and just looks at me. I thought I was going to have to fight this guy, you know. So I stood up. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight you sitting down. So I stood up, and he said, "You're out of here." I said, "What?" He goes, "I'm throwing you out. I want you to leave the premises, leave the building." I said, "Okay." I said, "So you're gonna deny me my treatment?" And I looked at the nurse and I said, "He's he's gonna deny my. He's denying my treatment. I don't know who he is to deny that. He's not a doctor." She said nothing. As a matter of fact, she walked away, and went into the back. So, for the sake of argument, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight with this guy, you know, to hell with you. So I grabbed my bag and I left. So I'm sitting at home <clears throat> at about one o'clock in the afternoon. My phone rings. Excuse me. And it's Alberto Perez, the facility administrator. And he's calling me to ask me what had happened. 
because it did eventually get to him what it, that, that what had happened that the guard had thrown me out. So I explained to him what had happened. And he said to me that the nurse had no right to do that. She had a right, but she didn't have any right to kept, keep pressing it. I'm a grown-ass man, you know, so just let it go. But the security guard, a rent-a-cop, uh, violated my rights as a patient. And that's what I brought up with Alberto. He violated my rights. He violated so many of my rights. I ha I could have I could file a lawsuit. You know, and he said, yes, I understand, but, you know, da 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 I said, well, you know, I want this guy fired. He shouldn't be working there anymore. And you know what? After that incident, he was never allowed back. I don't think he, I think that had something to do with it. I never saw his face again. So, anyway, that was the one day I got kicked out of the clinic. So then Alberto breaks the news to me that Victor had died. Uh, and I said, what did he die of? I said, I know he had the flu. So they said he had a heart attack. Mm. <clears throat> well, there you go. Once again, our hearts give out. <coughs> a lot of it has to do with being on dialysis. And I've, I've mentioned that to you many, many times. Uh, the dialysis procedure removes things from your body that as much as they try to put them back in, they don't put it, put it back in enough. So our hearts usually fail, and uh, Victor was gone. I felt really bad that I lost my friend. Well, there's nothing I can do. I mean, all I can do is mourn the loss of my friend and do what I can to continue my life uh, this is kind of another milestone. It's nothing that I'm proud of, but uh, on the 18th of this month, which is actually in three days, uh, I will have four years on dialysis. And uh, I don't know. It's not... Like I said, it's not something I'm proud of. I mean, I mark I mark the time because when you're on dialysis, that's all you can do is just mark the time. Uh, I I remember uh, on the 16th of April, I was in the hospital having a uh, my uh, access put in my right arm. And in the process of the procedure, they also put a hole in my chest for a catheter, which was a direct line. When you when you go on dialysis, you're going to have a fistula or a graft put in your arm, uh, usually in your upper arm. Sometimes some some people it's in the forearm, but you're going to have a little hole in your chest because until your arm is healed, they really can't use your access. So they put a chest catheter in you, which is a, basically a tube with two leads that go into your subclavian artery. And you have a little catheter that sticks out of your, this little hole in your chest. And you're going to have that in your chest for about 90 days. Eight, uh, it's about, it takes about eight weeks for your arm to heal fully before they can start sticking needles in it. And um, so you got to live like this with this thing sticking out of your chest. So one of the things they tell you not to do is you can't shower because they don't want water getting into the into the that hole because you know could, could cause an infection and the stuff that's in the water is not necessarily the most hygienic. So I had to learn for 90 days. I bathed out of a basin with a washcloth and a towel. And that's how I kept myself clean. Wasn't easy, but I did it. And when my eight weeks was up and they gave me the clean bill of health to start sticking my arm, the catheter was removed. 
and then I had to wait for that wound to heal. It took about a week, and then I was good to go. But you can tell the people that are newbies at the clinic because they still got that catheter sticking out of their chest. And uh, once they start sticking the needle in you, they don't stop. Actually, when they start with the needles, they start out with a very small needle, uh, like a, I think it's an 18 gauge. And then once you start tolerate that, they go to a 16 and then to a 15. And although the number gets smaller, the needle gets bigger to when you're at the final stage was where you're they're using 15 needles 15 gauge needles on you which are about the size of the coffee a coffee stirrer that you would find you know wherever you get coffee just take one of those cut it to a fine point and you have about a, a 15 gauge needle and imagine though two of those being stuck in your arm every other day Hey, at least you get the weekends off if you're Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So, <laughs> yeah, there you go. And um, that's life. And then you end up like me, waiting for somebody to pass on a kidney. As I mentioned earlier in the last block about people becoming living donors, don't be afraid. You can live on one kidney. You can live very well on one kidney. I have a friend that lives with one kidney because he had to have one removed, but he does okay for himself. And if you gave up a kidney to somebody that could use it, you're giving the ultimate gift, the gift of life. And it doesn't get any better than that. So think about it. You can help somebody because some, sometimes you sit there and you go, God, how can I change the world? How can I help somebody? Find somebody that can accept your kidney, that won't reject it, and give it up. That makes you the ultimate superhero. I don't see Superman giving up a kidney, or Spider-Man, you know, or Batman. Well, you can be the ultimate superhero and give up a kidney and become a super badass, a lifesaver. So, okay, well, that's going to be it for this block. Good Friday is not always a good Friday, but it, like I said, it's the crucifixion of our Lord. And uh, I hope you all sit back and enjoy the Passion Play. First time they're going to have it in two years. And I know it's going to be crazy, 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 because everybody's going to want to be downtown and see the passion and cry and pray and do all that other good stuff. And then Easter, Easter eggs and brisket. Yay. All right. Well, you've been listening to the Chairline Chronicles. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Stick around. We'll be right back with more stuff. You're listening to the Chairland Chronicles. I'm not dead yet. I'm your host, Ben Hur. Thank you for sticking around. Welcome back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast, this episode, episode 3A, because I scrapped three, because it just took too damn long. And I'm dedicating this episode to Alberto Perez, because he was the guy that was there for me when, I, when my clinic needed somebody the most. I wish you were back because we're in a whole we're, we're in a shit stew right now with everything that's going on. We have no leadership and no one to guide us, no one to guide the people upstairs. But thank you for listening, and I will start working on my next episode, episode four, and maybe we'll be talking about things like Elon Musk and Twitter, uh, Jeff Bezos. Who knows? Of course, the war in Ukraine. I tried to stay away from all that and try to stick with the medical because it's just something I know a little bit better. I'm not saying I'm dumb. I know what's going on in the world and I have an opinion about everything. And uh, like I said, I hope you enjoy this episode. 
try to make it fun, try to make it informative, and I appreciate every ear you give me for listening from beginning to end. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you to Anchor Podcast for putting this on, for putting me on, for putting up with me, and all that good stuff. Take care, live, laugh, love. I love each and every one of you, and listen to the podcast, and uh, let's just have fun, let's live life, and let's, why can't we just get along? All right, take care. Be great, be yourself, be fearless. I am Ben-Hur. These are the Chairland Chronicles, signing off.